You know, I remember where I was 21 years ago. Do you? I remember, I remember feeling stunned at what I was witnessing. I remember I was disoriented, confused, in a way I was almost numb as to what I should be feeling. It's interesting to me how trials and suffering seem to do that. Struggles and pain, fear and worry, all have a way of disorienting our lives and distracting us from our purpose. But if you remember 21 years ago, something strange happened in our country. In the midst of all the confusion, in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the worry, in the midst of the pain, people by the thousands turned or returned. There's something clarifying that happened to about where they went and what they focused on. I want you to tell, I want to tell you that's not the first time that happened. That's why I love about the book of Acts, especially the passage we're going into. The first 12 chapters of Acts, we've witnessed the church transform Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and begin to leak into other parts of the world. And there were blips, there were struggles, there were issues, but each and every time we think that that might be the end of the church, the church seems to rally. The people of God continue to keep their focus. Up through Acts chapter 11, everything seemed to be going great again for the church, but then something tragic happened in Acts chapter 12. King Herod decided that he wanted to put himself in opposition to the church. He murdered the apostle James, the first apostle to be murdered for his faith. He arrested the apostle Peter, and his intentions were to do the same with him. The apostle Peter would have been murdered as well if it wasn't for miraculous and angelic jailbreak. But after all that suffering, after all that tribulation, as the church is huddling together in one home, praying as many of us would pray in a similar situation, asking for everything, but more than likely believing in nothing, at the end of that time, we see this verse, Acts chapter 12, verse 24. As a result of all that trouble, all that fear, all that angst, all that worry, huge biblical but right at the beginning, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and be multiplied. Right when it's understandable, the church would struggle. Right when it's, we would get it if the church took a break. We would understand if Christians took a step back, if they would end up being distracted, disoriented by the struggles of their culture. But that's not what happened. The church not only survived, but as we go into Acts chapter 13, the church took the next huge step forward 
and intentionally bringing the gospel, beginning the journey to the uttermost parts of the world. I was thinking this week, man, what did those Christians have that we need to remember? In the midst of our cultural struggles, in the midst of what we're worried about, stunned by, disoriented by, in the midst of our fears, our worries, I think we can find two characteristics that existed in the early church back then that we would be good to take note of in our lives today. If you have your Bibles, you can join me in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, two characteristics that we might want to refocus our movement, our hearts, our lives. We're going into Acts chapter 13, but I think it's important that we look at the verse prior. The last verse of Acts 25, or Acts chapter 12, verse 25, and it gives us some clarity It gives us some direction. It kind of sets a foundation for what's happening. And here it is, verse 25 of Acts chapter 12. It says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. And so often we just glance past that verse right into chapter 13, verse 1. But here's why I think it's important. If you remember the church of Antioch, at the time of the church of Jerusalem and Judea, when they were struggling, the church of Antioch was on the opposite side. Man, they were, they were seeing God do amazing things. So they decided to take an offering. The church of Antioch decided to take an offering and give it to the church of Jerusalem, 300 miles away. And they sent that offering with Paul and Barnabas. What many people believe, Paul and Barnabas were in Jerusalem when this time of suffering occurred. They were there with the church in the midst of their angst when James was killed. They were there in Jerusalem when Peter was arrested. Perhaps they were even there in the prayer meeting in that house. And they were there witnessing the word of the Lord continuing to grow and be multiplied, growing exponentially during that time. And after chapter 12, when Paul and Barnabas were witnessing what's going on, then they returned to the church in Antioch. And you got to know they were telling stories. Sharing what was going on to the mother church. Updating them on the struggles of their culture and the work of God in the midst of it. And again, one would understand if the church of Antioch wanted to slow down and rethink, reconsider, recalibrate. One would understand if they would feel a little shell-shocked, disoriented by the way culture was attacking their movement. But that's not what happened. After hearing this news of Paul and Barnabas, the church of Antioch decided to take a huge step forward. In this next passage, we're going to see what I believe are two characteristics. Two things that they had that helped it happen. 
Two things they had that kept them focused in the midst of a kooky and crazy culture. And maybe two things that we should be looking for. For our lives as well. So let's go to Acts chapter 13. First characteristic. First characteristic I think that these people had. Was a great church. First characteristic is a great church. Listen, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Listen to some of the descriptors. Now there were at Antioch in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menane, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There's a number of things I want to make sure you notice in this description of this church. So often Acts chapter 13, we just kind of read through that and get to verse 4. But I think we see some great attributes of this church. First, Luke describes their leadership he describes their leadership, and, and what I see that's most important in here is the diversity that's in this church. Like he said, there in Antioch in church that there was prophets and teachers. That's Luke's way of describing the leadership, those who are proclaiming the word of God and explaining the word of God. That was their role. They proclaim the word of God and explain the word of God. And look at the diversity. There was Barnabas. We've talked about Barnabas before. He's a Levite. He was a Levite who likely owned nothing but his burial plot. Devoted his life to the church, to the temple. But then when Jesus grabbed his heart, something changed in Barnabas where he sold his burial plot and invested all of it into the movement of God. And Barnabas was someone who was all in. Barnabas was loved by everybody. He was known for his ability to encourage and exhort and empower people. There's Simeon, who's also called Niger. Simeon was likely from Africa, who found the truth of the gospel while he was visiting Antioch, and he stayed there. He had Lucius of Cyrene, most of believe Lucius was one of those original ordinary people. Remember from Acts chapter 11? It's just a group of ordinary people. No one famous, no one well-known, no megachurch pastors, just normal people. Lucius was likely one of those who went into Antioch and just started proclaiming the Lord and a movement of God took over that city. There's Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Menaean must have been an interesting fellow. Seeing this time, children in the palace would need friends. So the palace would grab some foster kids and raise them in the palace. So little Herod would have some buddies. They would be educated together, they would play together, they would eat together. Manan evidently was one of those who would have experienced the greatest things in life growing up, 
who was raised with Herod. But here's two, two men raised the same way. Herod opposed the plan of God and beheaded John the Baptist. Manan submitted his life to Jesus Christ and became a leader in the church of Antioch. And lastly, there is Saul, right? The Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who was converted to Jesus, gave his life to Jesus, and became a leader in the church. As I'm looking through those names, one of the things that I love about this church is their diversity. You have rich people, poor people. You have people from various cultures, some people educated with the best and other people not. You have different cultures, different backgrounds, different ethnicities within this church. And all of these guys proclaiming and explaining the work of God. As thinking of this week, I wonder if his experience in Antioch helped shape the Apostle Paul's theology they shared at the Corinthians. Look at what he said. He shared this to the Corinthian church. He said, For even as the body is one, and yet as many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Look at this. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Man, Paul had this commitment to unity in the church. Could it be part of that influence is what he experienced in Antioch. Like he witnessed it. He was a part of it. And you know why one reason why I think this church or these followers, this movement, was able to continue to move forward in the midst of this uncertain time it's because they're a part of a great church. The first marker I see is diversity. But it continues and said, it's not just diversity, but they were prayerful. Verse 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Some of your Bibles might say, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. That, that phrase ministering to the Lord means that these leaders were performing their religious duties. They were practicing their religious rituals. Most believe this is just a fancy way of these men were dedicated to prayer. I mean, they were doing their duty as proclaimers and explainers of the word of God, of leaders of this church. Man, they were prayerful. Look how it describes that they're ministering to the Lord and fasting. Fasting is not an instrument to make our prayers more important to God. In fact, it's actually the reverse. It's an instrument to help us make sure that we are aligning our hearts with God. Fasting is a tool that makes our prayer life more of a focus for us. It forces us to be mindful and focuses us to have communion with God. It's a mark of deep spiritual concern. So when Paul and Barnabas came back, shared all that's going on in Jerusalem, first thing these leaders did was pray. And they dedicated themselves to prayer. 
seeking guidance. God, what do you want from us? Where do we go from here? They wanted to make sure that their future was aligned with God's future. When I look at this great church, the great church of Antioch, some characteristics we see early on, they had diversity of leadership. It wasn't just one guy. It wasn't just one megastar, one superstar. It wasn't one person that God spoke to. There's a plurality of leaders in this movement and diversity of leaders in this movement. Paul said, man, that's, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. He brings all these people together, unifies us through the Holy Spirit. These guys were prayerful, not dictating to God what he needs to be doing for us but seeking the Lord, what we ought to be doing for him. This great church, they were diverse, they were prayerful. And look at this. While they were ministering the Lord and fasting, as they were seeking the Lord's direction, God answered. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Set apart for me. That term, set apart, by the way, means to cut off from the rest, to commission for a specific purpose, or draw a division between one group and another for a specific reason. Cut off those two guys. As these leaders, diverse, prayerful, God responds. I want you to cut out these two guys, send them on a special mission. And these weren't just two guys. This was Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas was likely the glue of this whole group. He came from Antioch. He was familiar with the landscape, with the people, with the leaders. He was likely the one that would just get everyone to, be along, to get along. He was the encourager, the exhorter. He was the guy out front of church just kind of hanging out with the people, drinking coffee, eating donuts on Saturday. It was fantastic. That was Barnabas. And Saul, Saul was likely the smartest guy in the room. He went to the best schools. He was mentored by the greatest Jewish thinker of all time. Not only that, Saul was taught by Jesus. Do you know that? Saul was taught by Jesus. Look at what, look what he said in Galatians 1. These are the words of Saul. He said this, For I would have, have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So you only have Saul who went to the best schools, was mentored by the greatest Jewish thinker, not just of his time, many believe ever. And then he had one-on-ones with Jesus. And here's this church of Antioch, maybe facing some of the most turbulent times of their future, praying to God for direction. God, we want to make sure, help us make sure we're on your path. And God says, hey, great, thanks for asking. Give me your two strongest leaders and send them out. And they did it. I was thinking, how do you think we would respond 
How do you think this church would go? In the midst of COVID, in the midst of the height of all the drama, if God said, all right, send out Victor, send out Jeff. The two smartest people on staff, get rid of them. No offense to the rest of us. <laughs> I think we'd be a little freaked out. But that's, what, that's the third characteristic of this church. Man, this great church, they were diverse. It wasn't about one guy. Like there were multiple leaders, diversity of thought, culture. They were prayerful. They weren't demanding God respond to them. They were prayerful and fasting to make sure that they were responding to God. Then they were missional. God said, all right, I want you to send these two guys out because it's not all about you. You're part of a global kingdom of God. I want your two best. And send them out. Now, to be completely honest, I don't think it was super easy for this church of Antioch. Verse 3, look at what they did. Then, after hearing that, it would have been great if it said, then, after hearing that, they immediately laid their hands on them and sent them away. That's not what they did. You see this? Then, when they had fasted and prayed, I wonder who brought that up. Hey, let's make sure. Before we kick out Barnabas and Saul, let's make sure. Most believe this was a church thing. They plural, like everyone's coming together. Then they laid their hands on them. Laid hands, that phrase means they were not only supportive, but communicated this church was committed to this new ministry God was calling. Hey, Saul and Barnabas, man, we're in this with you. We're not only sending you out, but we're a part of this. We're with you in heart and spirit. We're in this with you. Don't just go with our blessing. Go with our support. Go with our investment. I sent them away. So I was reading through this church of Antioch and looking at these different attributes of them. I was thinking, man, I, I, I think this church, you, CVCC, share a lot of these great attributes. During COVID, when everything kind of hit the fan, if I can say it like that, you guys stayed unified. You guys stayed focused. You stayed together. How? How did you do that? First, I think you're a part of a great church. There's diversity of leadership. There's diversity here. Different socioeconomic levels, different education levels, different cultures. And we have Chinese speakers, we have a Spanish church meeting in the back. I mean, you're committed to diversity, just like Antioch. And by the way, I think every church should be because that evidently is the role of the Holy Spirit to bring unity of everyone together. Jesus told us to pray that God's kingdom on earth would come down on heaven that we would get a glimpse of it. When we look at God's kingdom on earth, it's all languages, all peoples, all colors, worshiping together in one voice to the Lord. I Man, if unity is seen anywhere, it ought to be seen here. 
You guys are prayerful too. From the prayer chain to Sundays, prayers throughout the week. You guys are missional. I was thinking this week, you know over the last eight years you have sent out three senior pastors from this church? Last eight years. You've sent out three people that you hired, you trained, you equipped, and you sent out. You invest a lot of money and time and other leaders within the Chino Valley. This church supports and encourages pastors within our own community and around the world. So I just want you to know, I was reading through this text thinking, man, Antioch is a great church. So CVCC. You know why I think that you've remained unified and strong and God gets all the glory for it, but I want you to know, I think you're a great church. Diversity of leadership, prayerful, submitting yourself to God's direction, and missional. And it's never been about you. You've always wanted to be a part of other people's things to make sure that God's kingdom grows. I think that's another thing that uh, Scripture teaches. Look at Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 teaches us that this church movement is important. He says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. goes on and it says, Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this verse, I'm sure you heard a ton of it, because this was the verse saying, we got to get back on campus. But that's not the point of the verse. The point of a verse is you need to be a part of community of believers. I mean, you can't live this alone. You can't be a Christian life and faithfully alone. Hebrews is saying you got to be a part of a great church. Not once a month. regularly apart. I reckon there's a number of you saying, man, Brian, we're, we're attending. I still don't feel like I'm connecting. I still don't feel like I have relationships, like I'm a part of it. I got to tell you, man, that is one of our biggest goals moving into this next season. It's making sure that everyone has a group to be a part of, that everyone can belong and be missed. Everyone has a place where they can grow to where they can honestly wrestle with the truth of Scripture, how to apply it in life. So everyone has someone they can serve with and have a place where they can be encouraged to share their faith with others. I feel like, Brian, I still need that. There's this uh, card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill that out. Those of you in the front row, it's in the back of your seats. Or you can just go to the info, information center or just find someone that has like a name tag lanyard and just ask them. Man, you want to be 
firm in your faith, to remain focused in the midst of adversity and struggle. First characteristic, I think, be a part of a great church. But there's more. There's another attribute of this movement that helped them remain focused and centered in the midst of struggle. Number one, they had a great church. Number two, they had a powerful focus. Look at this, verse two. So after the Holy Spirit said, send these guys out. Verse four, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I put a little map here, give you a little idea of Paul's, uh, Saul and Barnabas' missionary journey. And we're gonna go back to this. As we go back to Acts, every week we'll be bringing this up just so you know where they're going. Their first stop was Cyprus. It's kind of like the Hawaiian island of their day. It was known, it was like the vacation hotspot where all the rich people went to hang out. That's where you could live the good life, the relaxed, comfortable, aloha life. Ironically, Barnabas and Saul started there, not to vacation, not to relax. I want to share their focus with you. They were focused on a number of things. Verse 5, look what it says. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their helper. First part of their powerful focus was proclaiming the gospel. Man, they didn't go there to relax. They didn't go there and say, okay, we have a long trip. Let's hang out, chill out, drink some Mai Tais. Let's make sure we're good and strong and healthy on the inside. They went right to it. And their focus was proclaiming the gospel. That term proclaiming means bold announcements, declaring the good news of salvation in a large way. Man, these guys were not preaching in the shadows. They didn't have some back room area. They went right for it boldly proclaiming the gospel. Man, their focus on their ministry was helping people understand the power of salvation for all who believe. I was thinking this week, what do you think our focus is, huh? What's the focus of your ministry? Focus of your life? I think sometimes we get distracted. Some of us might say, oh, my... My focus is I'm raising good kids. Well, that's great, good kids, but if they don't know Jesus, what's going on? Maybe our focus is political reform. Brian, this culture is going to hell in a handbasket. Okay, but politics ain't the answer, right? I mean, that's one thing we've learned. It's the gospel. The gospel is the hope. Social reform meeting the needs of the marginalized in our community, all good things. But there's really only one answer, one focus. And everything else should come after, underneath, proclaiming the gospel. That's why twice a year we have a month dedicated to sharing our faith. Sharing our faith with one person. Man, one person. After all, remember Acts 1a, that's what we're here for. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 
You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Man, one of the main reasons of the Holy Spirit is to empower you to share your faith. And I'm convinced God has placed one person in your life. One person that has yet to see who Jesus is. I've shared these thoughts with you before. 47% of our 10-mile radius, 47% of people, no faith involvement at all whatsoever. Yet in those who are deceived into false religions, you're looking at almost 60% of people in our 10-mile radius do not, have not even heard about the truth of Jesus Christ the way that you have. Chances are there's one person in your life, and I'm confident of this, one person that God has put in your circle of influence for you to share your testimony of what Jesus did. You've already complained about gas prices with them. You've already talked trash about football with them, right? You've already argued about whether Arby's is good quality or poor quality fast food. Have you talked about Jesus? This month, we've committed to pray every Sunday that God would give you a name, one name. One name of someone that you could proclaim the gospel to. And then my request, when you get that name, write it on the board out front so I can be praying for them, so our church can be praying for them. Every time you walk by that board, would you just pause 10 seconds? Pray for those people. You want to be an overachiever? You can stay there 10 minutes and pray for every person. Huge aspects of this church, this movement, they had a powerful focus, man. Nothing was distracting them from sharing their faith. Will you prayerfully commit one name, one person that you'll proclaim the gospel to? Let's pray for that right now. Jesus, we're grateful for all that you've given, all that you've stirred, all that you've done in our lives. God, I pray right now for our church, for these people here, God, you give us faith, courage, boldness. God, we pray for one name. God, Holy Spirit, would you give one name? One name to each person here that you are asking and desiring for them to just share what you've done in their life. God, we pray for those people. You give them ears to hear. God, I pray for our people. You give us boldness and strength as we commit to taking this step for your glory. Pray things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two more things before we go. Sorry to tease you. Some of you are like, sweet, that was fast, Brian. (laughs) I know you. I know you. You guys are like, wow, good job. Nope, we have a little bit more to do. Right? When we're talking about their powerful focus, they were focused on proclaiming the gospel. But number two, I want you to see they were focused on confronting deception. Confronting deception. Look what happened. Verse 6, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who's with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and saw and sought to hear the word of God. 
Bedelimus, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn away the proconsul away from the Lord. That turn opposing means that it was, he was hostile, setting up roadblocks, built up blockades, built a resistance movement against them. Luke's saying, listen, this one guy, he did not want this person to hear about Jesus. This wasn't a political thing. This was a selfish thing. He wanted control. He wanted the position. He wanted the power. Look at Paul's response, verse 9. But Paul, who is also known, Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, Right, you're, well, we'll just continue. You who are full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of God? Paul looks at him and says, you're perverting the gospel. You're perverting it. You're changing it. You're blocking it. You're opposed to it. I want to tell you, look at what Paul Look at what Paul said to the Galatian church about people who, who wanted to change the gospel, pervert the gospel. But even if we, Paul says, for an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. That's that term accursed. It's Bible talk for damned doomed and there's not anything worse in Paul's eyes than someone who perverts the gospel I wonder if he got that from Jesus Jesus said man if anyone's going to lead a child astray when it comes to the truth of Christ it's better to wrap a millstone around your neck and throw yourself off Point Loma I mean serious words and Paul isn't going to play with this Paul confronts him and says, you're perverting the gospel, verse 11. Now behold, surprise, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. He went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. I was thinking this week, how should we confront deception? Men are so good at confronting people on Facebook who disagree with our political opinions or our sports opinions or all those other things. But about people who claim spiritual authority and pervert the gospel, where are we for that? And I know most of us, if not all of us, don't have the power to like curse someone with blindness. So how should we respond? How do we do it? Look at what Paul told Titus, one of his young pastoral leaders and friends. Titus chapter 1. Oh, we're supposed to turn there, sorry. Put your thumbs in Acts. Flip over to the right a few books. Book of Titus. Titus chapter 1. I want you to turn here because I want you to have this. I want you to know where it is in your Bible. Mark it, put a mark in there, draw a circle around it, whatever. I want you to see what, what Paul told one of his young pastoral protégés. Titus chapter 1, verse 10. Look what he says. 
By the way, he's not talking about culture here. He's talking about people with, within the movement of Christ. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Reprove them severely. That's Bible talk for let them have it. Man, if there's people within the movement perverting the gospel, let them have it. If there's people within the movement who are making the straight paths of Jesus crooked, let them have it. Confront them. Alert them. Why? So they may be sound in faith. What should we be doing as Christians? We have a movement with all these talking heads all saying different things. What should we be focused on? This group, what they were focused on? Number one, proclaiming the gospel. Number two. Number two, confronting deception. And number three, expecting results. Look at verse 12. Look, and we're finishing here. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And Saul and Barnabas, Antioch, they didn't do all of this wondering if maybe God would do something. They went into this in confidence that God had a plan, that God was going to do a work. They went in expecting God to do something because they believe they were called for it, empowered for it expected to be a part of it. I think the same thing is true for you and for me. That we should be stepping out in confidence. Man, you're part of a great church. And you have a powerful focus. The question is, will we walk in it? Oh, Paul said, 2 Corinthians... 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. To another church in, in Ephesus, Paul said, to, who, to him who is, or is already at work in you, who is able to accomplish far more than you can ask or even imagine, the power that's already at work within you, Paul continues to talk to Christians Back then and today, don't get distracted. Don't get disoriented. Don't get fearful because of culture. Remain focused. Being a part of a great church helps. But second, being confident of what God has already equipped you to do. My question for you, have you lost focus in your Christian life? Have you been distracted by life, disoriented by struggle, disgusted by others? And because of that, you've been disoriented, distracted, and forgotten why you're here. 
And you are a child of God if you have given your life to him. He has saved you, renewed you, transformed you, empowered you to be a part of a movement that has transformed cities, that has renewed homes, that has restored lives, and the same power that was at work in Antioch in Jerusalem, the same power is at work in the Chino Valley. It's so easy to lose focus by our kids, by our culture, by our worries, by our fears. Two characteristics that help these Christians here. A great church and a focus. Proclaim the gospel. Confront deception. And watch God work. Let's pray. God, we are here, many of us, because we do believe in your power. God, it's through your power that broken people can come together in confidence of not only your mercy and grace in our lives, but God, the mercy and grace that we can share to others as well. But God, we confess that sometimes what, what's going on around us in our marriage with our children, in our community, in our world, God, we get distracted, we get disoriented, we get confused. God, we lose focus and we drift. God, I'm grateful for the example of Antioch. A church filled with ordinary people who accomplish great things in your power for your glory. God, help us to do the same. God, continue to open our eyes that we might see your path. Open our ears that we might hear your leading. Open our hearts. God, that we would have the courage to move in your direction. And God, give us faith that we would still expect great things. God, give us faith in restoring our homes. Give us faith in reaching and protecting our children. God, give us faith in believing that you have not abandoned kooky California. God, give us faith. God, that you have transformed cities with less. God, use us. Empower us. Embolden us. Unite us even more that we might bring you glory together. We pray everything in Jesus' name.